Welcome to the Maitripa College podcast. Maitripa College is a Buddhist institution of higher education founded by Yangtze Rinpoche in 2005 in Portland, Oregon. We offer two graduate degree programs, a Master of Arts in Buddhist Studies and a Master of Divinity, as well as classical Tibetan language studies. Founded upon the three pillars of scholarship, meditation, and service, the Maitripa College curriculum combines Western academic, contemplative learning, and traditional Tibetan Buddhist disciplines. Through the development of wisdom and compassion, our graduates are empowered with a sense of responsibility to work joyfully for the well-being of others. They become agents of positive change in the world and are shaping the development of Buddhism in the West. As scholar practitioners, chaplains, professional translators, doctoral degree candidates, leaders in the nonprofit world, educators, and more. We invite you to join us to make your practice your life. In this week's episode, during Maitripa College's Friday Night Faculty Talk, visiting professor Jan Willis teaches on the Buddha's wisdom, the importance of dependent origination. Thanks to all of you for being here. It's good to see you, many of you again, some of whom I, some of you I saw yesterday, right? Earlier today. <laughs> so I'm glad you're here. So I was asked to give a public talk. And you know, it was sort of, it's like uh, Namdal says, well, I don't know if I remember to ask you about a public talk. Are you willing to do one? I said, yeah, I guess. <laughs> she said, quick, then send me a title. So I sent a title <coughs> called The Importance of Dependent Origination. You all probably know what dependent origination is, right? Don't you? Oh, you've plumbed those depths, right? I'm just going to say some, I'm just going to make some comments about its central place within Buddhism. This is not just a profound doctrine. This is what sets Buddhism apart from other religious traditions, even of its time. I want to hone in on that for a while, literally the importance of it, okay? Before we talk a little bit about what it means, all right? Tonight, you're going to be hearing a lot about Nagarjuna. At least you're going to hear that name a few times. Before I begin the talk, I like to think of what Nagarjuna, apparently Nagarjuna, you know his legend. He, li he lived about 800 years, so his name is attached to lots of writings. In one such writing, Nagarjuna um, wrote, uh, something called the Bodhicharya Sambhara Shastra. The Bodhicharya Sambhara Shastra. Now, that's a teaching or instruction on the Sambhara, what a, a Bodhisattva's uh, provisions, what's needed for the path, the Mayana path, a Bodhisattva. What do you need? That's the Sambhara. Hmm? So it's the Bodhicharya Sambhara Shastra. 
But what's interesting to me, a lot of interesting things in that text, small text, translated into Chinese uh, and, and translated from Chinese into English, Dharma Mitra. Mm. One of the things I find interesting about that text is a quote, um, at least it's a quote for me, uh, is a passage there that, that talks about how you can tell a genuine bodhisattva from a fake one. I like to remind myself of that before I do anything. It's kind of heavy. Oh, Nagarjuna said, a genuine bodhisattva, hmm? genuine, works for dharma over personal benefit. Works for virtue over or more than fame. Works for being over personal happiness and does all these things in secret. I like to say that, remind myself of that before I start talking. <laughs> it's kind of tough standard. <laughs> and does all these things in secret. Now, it's a way of talking about the eight worldly concerns, but you know? Dharma over material gain, oh, uh, virtue over, um, what did I say? <laughs> oh, I was trying to do it too short. Mm, virtue over fame, beings over personal happiness. Is it right? This is a genuine bodhisattva in secret. So tonight's talk is on Pratitit Sam Utpada. It's on the importance of that notion. Come in, join us. Just started. Hmm. How do we know this is so important for Buddhism? Well, I go back to the actual life of the Buddha and his enlightenment experience. And uh, you may already know the details of the life. In the Mahayana tradition, it's told in terms of the 12 great events. But then within those events, there's a great deal of embellishment and expansion. And I love to tell the story, so I have to get right to the point. The Buddha's enlightenment experience is preceded, I can't start right there, is preceded by the attack of Mara. Mara is from mri, which means to die. Mri. It's a terrible sounding word. Mri. Uh, any rate, gives rise to Mara, the god of death, Yama. Mm. Buddhist wisdom helps us become Yamantakas, that is, Conquerors of death. But going back to the Buddhas, uh, that evening that he attains, the evening just prior to his attainment, Mara says, mm, mm, mm. that guy thinks he can escape my grip. I won't have it. I'm not about to have it. 
He thinks he's going to get free of me? Death? How dare he? So Marv devises these plans to get the Buddha off that seat. Now, the Buddha is, according to all the tales, he's seated on the one spot on the entire earth that is the axis mundi, that sitting there, he cannot be moved. But Mara doesn't know that. Mara yells at him, get up, that's my seat, it belongs to me. The Buddha doesn't move. The Buddha doesn't respond. All of the, for the, from the Buddha's point of view, it's all silence. I'm just meditating here. No problem. Mara first tries, we're told, to seduce the Buddha from the seat. And he, to do that, he sends his three daughters, whose names are wantonness, names are capriciousness, you know, just pure lust. He sends his three daughters, tries to get Siddhartha Gautama off that seat. But of course, with each step the women take, they become more and more hideous in their appearance, so that the, the one who gets closest to the Buddha's samadhi, the aura of his meditation, by the time she gets that close, her breasts are dragging on the floor, on the ground there. The Buddha doesn't move. He's unmoved. He's unattracted. Oh. So Mara then says, well, if, if I can't seduce him, maybe I can frighten him. So that's when Mara unleashes the eight great, terrible storms and the enemies um, in ghoulish countenance and, and uh, demons of every sort uh, wielding weapons. And if there's a, is there an image of the Buddha's enlightenment? Maybe not right here in handy, but you may have seen it. The, uh, the blue aura of the Buddha's meditation with flowers coming inside it. Those flowers are the weapons. Mars hordes have weapons. And when the sword touches the Buddha's meditative aura, they become flowers. And they drop at his feet as a kind of veneration. Mara is fit to be tied. So then he says to all his wrathful forces, yell with me. Siddhartha, get up! And it causes the world just to, to tremble a little. And then the Buddha, who's been sitting there in meditative equipoise, mm, uh, with his hands folded in meditation, simply moves his right hand till it touches his knee. And with that gesture, he's calling upon the earth for witness. right? And the earth, Mother Earth, is said to rise up and sway in six different ways, which frightens Mara no end and all of Mara's hosts. They flee. Mara is vanquished. So then there's Siddhartha saying, hmm, now I'll settle in and meditate. And in the three watches of the night, it's said, he has the three stages of his enlightenment. The first stage is a stage wherein it comes in the Buddha's mind stream, his former lives. He sees them all. 
I don't know how we do that in modern day tech, you know, science. <laughs> he sees them all. Hmm? That's in the first watch of the night. In the second watch of the night, he sees the arisings and the endings of everyone else's lives. Imagine that. That's a lot. It was, and then, this, then this insight. Oh, it was, this is uh, Henry Clark Warren's uh, Buddhism in Translations. Quote here, page 82, it was before the sun had set that the great being thus vanquished the army of Mara, and then, while the bow tree in homage rained down red coral-like sprigs upon his priestly robes, he acquired in the first watch of the night the knowledge, the knowledge of previous existences. In the middle watch of the night, the divine eye that sees everybody's. And in the last watch, in the last watch of the night, his intellect fathomed dependent origination. Not only is it most profound, but if you think about it, during the time of the Buddha, there were other religious traditions where beings claimed to know these first two. They could tell you their past lives. They could predict yours and tell about relatives. In other words, these were not new observances. These were not new insights. And yet, the, during the third watch of the night, when the Buddha fathomed dependent origination, this was totally a new insight. This was a new understanding of things. The beginning of its importance. It's what sets Buddhism apart in that sense. Clear? Okay. And then there are these sayings. For example, Majjhima Nikaya 28 that says, this is my Baptist Buddhism, I like quoting chapter and verse. <laughs> I can't get rid of that, I just enjoy it. Hmm? Majjhima Nikaya, Middle Length Sayings, 28th Sutra, says, he who sees dependent origination sees Dhamma, and he who sees Dhamma sees dependent origination. That's powerful. It's like, this is what I teach, dependent origination. Now, there are other categories or other kind of rubrics. I remind my students, you might not remember the dates. You might not remember the individual names. You might not remember how to spell the names. But see what's important for you that you can carry away that you've learned from Buddhism, Buddhism in a nutshell, what is it, you know? And there are all these, these, these teachings. And some are in ones, and some are in twos, and some are in threes, and some are in fours, because it was an oral, oral tradition, right? It's good for the memory. So, um, for example, Dhammapada 5 says, 
Hatred is never appeased by hatred. Hatred is only appeased by love. This is an eternal law. Eternal law, the English translation, that's a translation of Dhamma. This is Dhamma. Hmm? Uh, the Buddha says in the Mahaparinirvana Sutra, uh, he says at the end of his life with the disciples gathered around, where women are in attendance, though that's often overlooked, and they're standing off to the side. The Buddha asked, is there anything else that I could have said that I haven't? There he says, okay then, you know, rely on the Dharma, work out your own salvation with diligence, he says. But before that, he says, I've taught only two things these past 45 years. Two things, suffering and its end. That's my Dharma. Suffering and its end. Pretty cool. And I really like this verse, Dhammapada 183. I think it, it gets all of Buddhism and all of practice. One little verse. That verse at Dhammapada 183 says, do no harm, practice virtue, discipline the mind. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. It's so simple. So simple, dear. Do no harm. Practice good. Discipline the mind. This is Dhamma. Okay. But dependent origination? Oh, it underpins all of uh, what we know of Buddhism. One of the, the main uh, mm, things. Uh, okay. How to, how to get into this now? Oh. Pratichitsamutpada, uh, people give various translations. Some is with. Utpada is to come up, you know, come to come up with what? To come up with what went before. Praticha, what had literally gone before. It's from the verb root e. Most people don't uh, see that. But because Sanskrit is like that, could read it this way, could read it that way. Oh, another example coming up. Prati could be before. It could be the pronoun, or you know, in front of, before. Uh, and it could mean what went before, and that's really the sense, because the verb is e to go, but it's ika, it's what had gone. So the simple way is to say that having been, this is. This arises because that was. Mm? given that this. But the point is that this would not be without that. That's the Buddha's teaching. It seems so simple. But it means that the way we typically get ourselves in trouble, could, we, could, we could do without that. If we just wouldn't hold on so much to some, some concepts, like permanence, like Atman, like this thing is this and only this, we don't see it as having come from something else. And therefore, it will cease to be all conditioned things. So we run into problems. More on that in a bit. But Pratichit Samutpada, 
which we translate dependent origination or dependent arising. And the point is that it arises in dependence on something else. That's the heart of the matter. If we could just get that really, we might be closer to freedom. We might be. OK. Sometimes for teachers, some of is glossed as the law of cause and effect. And in this sense, it underpins all the other rubrics I started to mention some in Buddhism. For example, the Four Noble Truths, kernel principle of Buddhism, right? There is suffering. And the Buddha never said, life is suffering. Some college textbooks say that. And they also say, it's a kind of pessimistic religion. All life is suffering. Buddha didn't say that. Then he knew the language. He could have said that if he wanted to say that. He could have said, jiwam, life. Awam, that very thing. Dukam, is suffering. Life is suffering. But he didn't say that. He said, dukam. Just that. There is suffering. You can add in life, because that's what we're experiencing. Life. There is suffering. That's all he said. Not life is suffering. I've seen it so many times. Huh? He said, suffering, there's a cause of suffering. There's an end of suffering. Yippee. There's a path leading to the end. But if you look at those four noble truths, hmm, look at them. There is suffering. Suffering is an effect. Effect. It is an effect. Of what cause? The cause, we typically say the most palpable cause, is craving, desire, hmm? because it fuels all, most of our activities. Hmm? It fuels at base, most philosophically, broad. What do we want? We want it to be otherwise than this. <laughs> what do we want? I want that book. What do we want? I want, I, I want, I want, but I really want something that's not this. Something beyond this, something, right? That kind of craving. So, so that craving, that trishna, that desire, uh, Buddhism says in the second, truth is the most palpable, but it's not the real cause. Uh, the real cause is our ignorance about how things exist, both ourselves and other dharmas, any experienceable, experienceable entity, even a thought is a dharma, small d. Oh. So if you look at it, the Four Noble Truths, so I'm, I'm suggesting here, Pratichisamutpada becomes the basis of Buddhist teaching. It's at base, it's underlying. So the Four Noble, so the Buddha's formulation, subsequent formulations, um, depended on this notion also, cause and effect. This being there, this will result. This being, this, this leads to this. This having been, this comes. So even the Four Noble Truths, suffering is an effect. Its cause is craving, hatred, and the basic ignorance that makes us generate those negative emotions. There's an end of suffering, there's an effect. Nibbana is an effect. It's an effect of what? Us cultivating the path. That's the cause. That's the cause of nirvana. Oh, 
So cause and effect is sometimes a gloss for pratichisamutpada. This being that becomes. This being that will be. This is because that was. Tikka. Oh, I don't know what I put on the second sheet. It was a few minutes ago. Could somebody turn this? Otherwise, the microphone will go flying. Yeah, I don't. Thank you, but I will. I'll remember. Thank you. Uh, I skipped over something. I want to go back and, and say it, like, because I like stories so much. That, so the, this was the Buddha's enlightenment experience. And then using the, the insights that he gained during that, uh, those three watches of his, uh, the night of his enlightenment. So he woke up in the morning, you know. We might have been bouncing off the walls, so giddy. Giddy wouldn't quite get it. The Buddha was blissed out, the texts tell us. And for seven days, he sat under the Bodhi tree just in bliss. And then he moved just a little bit to another tree. And another seven days he was blissed out. And then another, and then another, and then another, until the total was seven trees. Seven days each, which gives us the 49, which comes into play in so many Buddhist rituals. But anyway, he was blissed out. And then it occurred to him, because he had these powers now, he should share this teaching. That was his original wish. That's why he had come hither, which means he had come to the realm of samsara. He had come hither to liberate us, right? So he remembered. Okay, but because of these powers he's gained, he sees that his first two teachers have passed away. So then he thinks of the, the five with whom he'd meditated before when he was really during that serious asceticism extreme where he was eating two rice grains a day or three sesame seeds a day for six years until the skin of his stomach touched the skin of his back. When he was really meditating. And then when it occurred to him, when he's sitting there after six years, it occurs to him, this is getting me nowhere. My body's tired and, tired and my mind is confused. Then Sujata, she of good birth, appears and offers him milk and honey. And he takes it. And the, the five leave in disgust. So secondly, it comes to him after enlightenment that maybe those five, maybe they could hear this new teaching. It so goes against the grain, but maybe they could understand. Mm. Maybe they could understand. Oh. So the texts tell us that he sees where they are because he sees things now. He has this, this omniscient eye. He can see everything. So he knows where they are. And he, after 49 days of being blissed out, he turns towards the deer park at Sarnath and goes to teach those five. And getting close, uh, they make a pact because they're kind of disgusted with him. They think. He left the ascetic life. He gave over, you know. We were talking about this in class, you know. They say, ah, he's given up the path of asceticism. We, let's not speak to him. Let's not recognize him. Let's not. And the, and the more the five of them make that pact, he gets, the Buddha gets closer and closer. The more they're trying to make the pact, the more involuntarily they rise up. 
and the more involuntarily their hands fold into Anjali. And when he gets close, they say, greetings, Siddhartha. Hmm? And the Buddha says, don't call me that. Ooh, <laughs> I love it. Got a little fierce there, he did. He did. He says, don't call me. Don't call me by my first name. Something's happened. You can see it. Don't call me that. He says, at that point, call me Tathagata, which is a, a common epithet for the Buddha, but it means Tata is like that. You can't. And, oh, if, I, if I'd write it, Tata means suchness or like that. It's, uh, oh, and Agata means come, and Gata means go, and so the longest vowel there is ah. So you see, tata gata. You don't know whether it's thus gone or thus come. It means he's like a bird trapped in the sky. All right. And for the first 500 years of Buddhist teachings, he was not represented as a person. Check it out. There's the wheel. This is how you represent a Tathagata. Well, he was, something was here, but oh, something was here. I don't know what to call him. Or the wheel, another wheel, like the, at the deer park. You see the deer in the, in the wheel or this wheel with eight spokes, why eight? Why eight? Eightfold path. Yay, okay. But the Buddha was represented by symbols, not in human form. First 500 years of Buddhism. This is important. I'll mention it again at the end. Okay. Tikaya, mm. now where? Um, so the Buddha's this law of cause and effect is said that during the the third watch, when he has the experience of Pratijitsamatpada, one of the way he does one of the ways he does that is by seeing all oh, the so-called chain of twelve nidhanas. He sees, and we have that graphically represented, whenever we see the wheel of life and death, one of uh, wisdom's catalogs. I like graphics, too. Oh, this is the wheel of life and death, or the wheel of samsara. This is Yama. He holds that wheel in his mouth. He doesn't want beings to escape from it. He's holding six realms that are kicked off by a hub that has representatives of ignorance, hatred, and greed. Hmm? They begin samasai and they keep it rolling. They keep it rolling. Tikaha. Then the 12 on the outside, huh? those are the 12 nidanas. And the Buddha said, by virtue of what is their death, he's logically reasoning this out. He says, aha, uh -huh. birth. Can't die if you're not born. So birth becomes one of the 12. Uh, how does birth happen? Then he, he thinks, well, that happens through contact, right? He goes through all the way back to ignorance, which kicks the whole thing 
So he determines that if we could, if we could just reverse, and the texts tell us that during that third watch, he went from ignorance through birth and death and disease and all that, and then back again in reverse order. He saw them all, and he determined that, aha, we can break this asunder if we break ignorance. Then, and only then, will we be able to, as all the, these, these graphics show you, escape the wheel of samsara. See, the Buddha's never in that. The Buddha's always outside that, right? And when we say, omani pemehum, some practitioners are literally pulling beings from each of those realms. Omani pemehum, omani pemehum. They don't do it that slowly. They don't do it a little fast, right? But they're liberating beings, imaginatively, out of those six realms. Okay. Oh, what more do I want to say about it? So these are the 12 Nidanas. That's a, one way of talking about oh, dependent origination. Oh. When I was saying it was an important thing, I think now of 1991, the year of Tibet, the year of Tibet, when His Holiness mm, wrote the foreword to this Churyang, summer in the library, Churyang, the year of Tibet one, 1991, His Holiness uh, uh, emphasized that refuge should, should, should say, I take refuge in the Buddha who showed us dependent origination. It's important. It's a key doctrine. I take refuge in the Buddha who showed us, who gave us, who gave the world dependent origination. Okay, seems big. Okay, so the Buddha says dependent origination. What does that mean? It means, that's what we want to get to. Why is that sometimes glossed anatman? Why is it glossed emptiness? Why is it glossed non-self? Why is it all? So, a thing that exists in dependence on another thing lacks what? Lacks what? Lacks wabhava, which is literally own being. It lacks its own being. Anything else? Lacks that. Lacks permanence. Lacks all. Oh. Any of those and more, it lacks its own independence, its inherent existence. That just means hmm, it exists in dependence on other things. You know when at a Zen, uh, at a Zen temple you are taking your meal? Oh, you say blessings, you say grace, you say thank you for the 72 hands who brought this before me. You take recognition of the fact that this arose because of someone else. Or I say, just breathe. I think that's the best. I think this is why most meditations start there. Because it's not only calming, it's insightful from the very first breath. When you breathe, what do you realize? Oh, come on, you can say it. That you're alive? How are you alive? On owing to something outside yourself. 
other than yourself. Something other keeps us going. Just breathing should give us that insight. It does when you first start meditating. You, first you know, oh, gee, I didn't know I was having all these thoughts. Right? Oh, gee. Oh, oh, oh. No, I can't, I can't bring it back. I can't bring mm, mm, mm. Don't, don't panic. Mm. All of that's going on, the discursive thought, right? But the other thing is, you're, our very lives depend upon something other than ourselves. Not only our parents. All oh, my students go, oh, I don't know about this, Professor Willis. I don't know about this emptiness stuff. I don't know about this. I don't know about this selfless stuff. I say, don't worry. I, and, and then I'll get two reasons. Sorry, I don't, I shouldn't. <laughs> I'll get two reasons. One is, I'm a unique individual. I say, you still have that. That's really important to Wesleyan students, you know. <laughs> you spend the first two years honing your unique identity, right? I say, you won't lose it. You know, only you have your set of parents. You know, it's like, I, that bring it out, you know. You won't lose that. And then, well, you know, what really worries people about emptiness? The other side seems to me to be, not only might I lose my own identity, but what would that be for all those others to love? You know, like, if I lose that, I don't want to be in that dark place. So I say, oh, why is there a problem with emptiness? Why is there a problem <laughs> with anatman? Hmm? Why is it that we just don't want to go there? We say we want to be happy, hmm. but we keep going about it in ways that bring us suffering. Huh. What are we doing wrong? Wrong is a weighty word there, but please allow me. We're going about it in a way that only brings more suffering. Why is that? One of the things you've already said. We think things exist inherently. We think things exist permanently. We think, and that gets us into problems. What kind of problems, my students? I say, I used to do it this way, but now I go, hey girl, <laughs> let me tell you what happened. Girl, today, just shopping, there she was, or there he was, my knees got weak. Everything about her or him was perfect. It's not only, okay, it's perfect. The sound of her voice, uh, the, the mind, so bright, so joyful. So, you know, you're telling a friend, this first blush, first blush, right? And then six months go by. Oh, you know where I was going. Oh, girl, let me. He changed. She changed. Instead of being happy, the person kept going or changed, which was their nature. 
everything's nature is to change. Nothing is permanent. We are all upset. So, so my, I, some of my students have, well, okay, yeah, that's right, okay. But not only have we created permanence where there was none, we have projected perfection onto something. Poor baby, I hope, you know, we'll get to know him sometimes. You know, because right now, we have over-exaggerated over that existence, <laughs> that person. You know, they, we've made them perfect. How could they live up to that? Huh? And when we hate somebody, we underestimate them. Way, way down here, you know? Oh. And doing that causes us to suffer. Huh? It causes us to suffer. If we could somehow relax more about it, maybe meet that person, try to meet them straight head on, without all the projection, just maybe, we might like them. We might still like them. We might still like them. It seems easy, but it's hard to do. It's hard to put into practice, Tikaha. Getting back to this. Oh. So, some sutras say the Buddha moved among his uh, um, ordained and he said, Shunya, Shunya. <laughs> one day, uh, Sibutia, one of the disciples, stood and said, Lord, you say Shunya, Shunya. Why Shunya all the time? Of what is the world Shunya? A disciple, not just us. <laughs> of what is the world empty? You know, Shunya means zero. So it's like the base of all numbers and things grow from it. So it's not this despairing kind of thing. Shunya ties the, the fullness of that not being one yet, the possibility. So we could look at it positively, and some people do like Thich Nhat Hanh. He says, not being ourselves permanently fixed on being inherently existent always the same, that could be an occasion for us hmm, to say, hey, that's cool, and for us to realize that, yes, we are indeed interconnected. Joanna Macy, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, His Holiness. A lot of people talk about the positive side of voidness. You can talk about it quite simply, philosophically. We know these things, but we don't practice that way. This, oh, this is here. What's this? This is a, a pen. It's upside down. It's in this space. It's da da da. It's got black ink. We could. We could describe it, right? But if it, were perm if it were part of its description was that it was there, we could never use it. We couldn't do this. We can see that, right? Things, if, oh, if that were part of its quality, we couldn't move it. Navarajan says it's precisely because things of Precisely because things are empty that they have utility, right? We can understand that, right? But if it's about something we want, we tend to forget that and go, I want it this way, and I want it to stay this way. I want it to never change. 
Interrelatedness is a better way to think about it. Oh. I have to remind myself what I put on these things. Give me a marker and let me go. I'm used to blackboards and chalk. Okay. Might still need help. Nope. Okay. Interrelatedness. I'm black. I march with King. I have to say, uh, oh no, I skipped a page. Did I skip the page? Mm. Nope, I didn't write it down. Inter, our interrelatedness. Mm. This is like a breather. I want to read your story. I know you all know the famous uh, quote, Martin Luther King, our interrelatedness. Hmm? He says, there's an interrelated structure of reality. I cannot be what I should be until you are what you ought to be, and you cannot be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. And so there's this interrelated structure of reality. Charles Johnson, you know who that is? Lives in Seattle, black, Zen practitioner, winner of the National Book Award for Middle Passage. Uh, great writer, great short story writer. So he's written, a, there's a collection called Dr. King's Refrigerator. And Charles Johnson is speculating on how King came up with those words about the interrelated structure of reality. How he came up with it. Dr. King's refrigerator. So as a young minister, Dexter uh, Avenue Baptist Church, I've been there on, in Montgomery. His first assignment, he's writing his sermons. Oh, this is a short story. All right, he was up trying to write a sermon. Hmm. Scratching his stomach, he gazed and gazed at four well-stocked shelves of food. He saw a Florida grapefruit and a California orange on one of the middle shelves. He saw corn and squash, both native to North America and those coming from Indians. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, he began to, he got hungry one night, right, while he was writing the sermon. And he decided that, the other thing about Charles Johnson is he drops his humor in on things. So he said, he knew he shouldn't have done that. He, 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 he knows that whenever he goes over his diet, he balloons. So he knew that. But he was hungry after all. It was like 1 o'clock at night. So he went to the refrigerator. And scratching his stomach, he looked inside. He began to empty the refrigerator and heavily packed food cabinets, placing everything on the table, the kitchen counter, and when those were filled on the flower-printed linoleum floor. Taking things out slowly at first, his eyes squinted, scrutinizing each item like an old woman on a fixed budget at the bargain table in a grocery store. Then he worked quickly, bewitched, chuckling to himself as he tore apart his wife's tidy, well-scrubbed Christian kitchen. <laughs> he removed all the barrel and olives and then he goes on with a list of things. No two olives were the same. Within 15 minutes, Martin stood surrounded by a galaxy of food. From one corner of the kitchen floor to the other, there were popular American items such as pumpkin pie and hot dogs, but also heavy, sour, sweet dishes like German sauerkraut 
and schnitzel right beside Tibetan rice, one of the staples of the Far East. He looked and he goes, and no one people or one tribe living in one place on this planet could produce the endless riches of, for the palate that he just pulled from his refrigerator. He looked around the disheveled room and he saw in each succulent fruit, each slice of bread and each grain of rice a fragile, inescapable network of mutuality in which all earthly creatures were codependent, integrated, and tied in a single garment of destiny. The, the wife comes and he tries, Martin, she comes to the kitchen door. She backs out saying, oh. <laughs> Wait, honey, you've got to hear it. I've had an epiphany. I've had an epiphany. You have to listen. Mm -hmm. Are you all right, Martin? Of course I am. I've never felt better. The whole universe is inside our refrigerator. Did you know it? She blinked. Really? Well, I hope you know that the women's club is meeting here tomorrow morning, so I hope you're going to put that all back. <laughs> Sweetheart, he held up a grapefruit and head of lettuce. I had a revelation tonight. Do you know how rare that is? These things happen. They don't come easy. Just ask Ma Master, Meister Eckhart or Martin Luther. Don't you see what's happened? You made it possible for me to have this vision. Honey, honey. I'm going to bed, Martin. Straighten everything out. Put everything back before it spoils and come to bed. I'll be waiting. Martin watched her leave and said, yes, dear. Still holding a very spiritually understood grapefruit in one hand and an ontologically clarified head of lettuce in the other, he started putting everything back on the shelves, deciding as he did so that while his sermon could wait until morning, his new wife definitely should not. Charles Johnson is a Buddhist. Um, he's a writer first and foremost, but who has a he has a, a way into these kinds of ideas uh, that I find refreshing. Tikaha. Oh. No, how so? You have uh, the Heart Sutra. I guess we should we should we go to eight thirty. Okay, let's see if we can do this. You have before you the Heart Sutra. I want to make some comments about that sutra and the Diamond Sutra because, or as Lama Yeshua would say, because, because, dear, because. These are two of the shortest Prajnaparamita texts, Prajnaparamita, the perfection of wisdom texts. And the perfection of wisdom texts were texts that Nagarjuna himself, remember I said we're going to hear about him again? Nagarjuna brought back, presumably from the land of the Nagas, wisdom beings, serpentine beings, who keep wisdom under the water. Really, Nagarjuna probably went to South India. That's what this means. And he re-emerged with a group of texts called Pragnaparamita texts and dedicated to the goddess of wisdom. Pragnaparamita, 
These texts are dedicated to a female goddess. And she is recognized as the mother of all Buddhas. Rightly so. Because unless you have her wisdom, you don't become Buddha. She's the mother of all the Buddhas. All Buddhas have to have the wisdom that she represents. Okay? Tikaha. Nagarjuna brings back a collection of texts dedicated to the goddess Pragnaparamita. They are wisdom texts. They are presumably about wisdom. They go about it in sort of a, uh, an awkward, uh, awkward, seemingly nihilistic way. You know, there's a lot of no's in them. Not this, not this, not this, you know, like neti neti, the earlier Aryan philosophical denial of things. You don't have it right yet. Not this, not this, not this, not this. Oh, but I want us to look at these two texts because of the ways they help us to understand, I think, shunyata, emptiness. Things are empty of what? Empty of inherent existence. Empty of own being. Emptiness, empty of permanence. Oh, Thich Nhat Hanh says, shunyata tells us, hmm, uh, about time in terms of impermanence, tells us about space in terms of anatman. Are you with me? Oh, that's Buddha Einstein. That's space and time. You with me? Anitya, impermanence. Anatman, selflessness. The first is about time. The second is about space. They're both about the nature, the actual nature of things. How is it that things actually exist? So very quickly, I want to say this. Hmm? Oh. I'm trying to figure out which one's best to end with. OK, so let's look at the one you have, the Heart Sutra, which is the shortest. Hmm? This is one translation. This is Thich Nhat Hanh's translation. Lama Yishi has a translation. There are many. Translations of this, uh, I have Kansas here. Kansas, the, um, the translator of so many of the Pragnaparamita texts. So you have the two shortest texts. In this volume, they are both together, the Diamond Sutra and the Heart Sutra. Mm, as I was saying in class the other day, mm, it's important who's talking in the sutras. It's very uh, the. The audiences for their day would have known who these folk are and what they represent. Hmm? So in the Heart Sutra, oh, it's a sutra, so you, you just have the sort of kernel of it. It's a little longer than that because it sets up the context. The Buddha is shown first. The Buddha is somewhere else meditating. And then we pick it up with Avalokiteshvara meditating, the Buddha of Compassion. And then Avalokiteshvara, the Buddha of Compassion, in the Mahayana, uh, is giving advice to mm, Shariputra, who represents Theravadan wisdom, the height of Theravadan wisdom. It's important uh, that the heart, compassion, speaks to wisdom. But it's Mahayana, heart, compassion, speaking to Theravadan wisdom. So 
from his heart, Avalokiteshvara, in an attempt to bring Shariputra into understanding, all tells him how things appear from inside his meditation, Avalokiteshvara's meditation. Oh, okay. This sutra is being recited right now. In every Mayana monastery and nunnery, someone is charged with reciting the Heart Sutra. It's always being recited. That's pretty special, I think. It is never not being recited. So precious is the sutra. Tikaha. And this is the shortest. Okay, so I'll be looking at for Let's, uh, I don't know, let's read it together. Tikaha. Oh, just want to say one thing. This is Thich Nhat Hanh's translation. He's worked on it. Uh, he'd worked on it a lot. And then uh, five years went by, and he worked on it again. So this is the most current one, where he says the first time where you see he overcame all ill being, that's suffering. You'll see it later in the Four Noble Truths. OK. So let's read this, beginning with the title, The Insight That Brings Us to the Other Shore. Avilokiteshvara, while practicing deeply with the insight that brings us to the other shore, suddenly discovered that all of the five skandhas are equally empty. And with this realization, he overcame all ill-being. Listen, Shariputra, the body this, mm, and emptiness itself is this body. This body is not other than emptiness. And emptiness is not other than this body. The same is true of feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness. Listen, Shariputra, all phenomena bear the mark of emptiness. Their true nature is the nature of no birth, no death, no being, no non-being, no defilement, no purity, no increasing, no decreasing. That is why in emptiness, Body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness are not separate self-entities. The 18 realms of phenomena, which are the six sense organs, the six sense objects, and the six consciousnesses, are also not separate self-entities. The 12 links of interdependent arising and their extinction are also not separate self-entities. Ill-being, the causes of ill-being, the end of ill-being, the path, insight, and attainment are also not separate self-entities. Whoever can see this no longer needs anything to attain. Bodhisattvas who practice the insight that brings us to the other shore see no more obstacles in their mind. And because there are no more obstacles in their mind, they can overcome all fear destroy all wrong perceptions, and realize perfect nirvana. All Buddhas in the past, present, and future, by practicing the insight that brings us to the other shore, are all capable of attaining authentic and perfect enlightenment. Therefore, Shariputra, it should be known that insight that brings us to the other shore is a great mantra, the most illuminating mantra, the highest mantra, a mantra beyond compare, the true wisdom that has the power 
to put an end to all kinds of suffering. Therefore, let us proclaim a mantra to praise the insight that brings us to the other shore. Gatte, gatte, para gatte, para samgatte, bodhisoha. Gatte, gatte, para gatte, para samgatte, bodhisoha. Gatte, gatte, para gatte, para samgatte, bodhisoha. I can only say a couple of things. Oh, how many of you have done this, this sutra before? Oh, all of you. Go, huh? Well, you could probably tell me. You want to switch places? Oh. This is the heart of the Buddhist wisdom. It's their shortcuts, right? It's condensed. It's the only Pragnaparamita with a mantra. For practice sake, that has meaning. Mm. Mm. Oh, sorry I didn't explain for those of you who are not in my classes. I say that a lot. I'm perfectly fine. Oh, mm. oh, it's just a pause. Mm. That's Hindi. Tikaha is Hindi. Okay. So in the actual, in the, in the actual, in most translations, there's just one line of the mantra. It's repeated three times here. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh, in some oh, videos and some other teachings, he explains when he's going through this, when he says the different verses and he touches a finger, right, as a memory device. All right. There's a key memory device in the mantra as well. Oh. So translate it. You're not supposed to ever translate mantras. But gone, gone, gone beyond, gone completely beyond bodhi, soha. Okay. Uh, in the Tibetan, in the Tibetan tradition, I don't know if you had teaching from Yang Tse Rinpoche on this. I'd hate to be in disagreement with <laughs> mm, Let me say, Geshe Gelsen, one of Lama Yeshe's close yogi friends uh, translated this mantra and says it's a memory device for and a way of talking about and a way of reminding the practitioner all of the five paths you heard of those and the ten grounds the ten boomies you know what I mean the path of accumulation the path of okay that's what this is go Path of accumulation. Go. Preparation. Go beyond. Seeing. Woo! Seeing. Seeing is so important. Oh! Parasamgate. Meditation. Bodhi. Praise the Lord. To mix religious tradition. <laughs> um, Bodhi. No more learning. Bodhi itself, let it be, let it be so. Uh -huh. So a practitioner, oh, uh, so this is the one, mm, that, 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 I'm sorry. This is, this is the Pragnaparamita that condenses all of uh, Mayana practice in terms of, I'll just say it that way, 
in terms of the five all paths and the ten grounds, the ten bodhisattva bhumis. As a reminder, keep going. Don't stop. Go to this, and that becomes this, and that becomes this, and then it's nice. I'm not saying personal experience, I'm saying it's the way it's laid out is nice. Oh. That people have said, doesn't matter what the words are, doesn't matter what the mantra is, you know. I know I'm getting closer to enlightenment every time I recite the Heart Sutra. It is always being enlightened. We can give thanks for that. Take a hot. Want to talk about one of the sutra as a way, and then oh, I want to have questions and answers, but I want to say something about the Diamond Sutra, and I hope you will help me to understand what the similes are doing. Diamond Sutra. In Diamond Sutra, so here we have no, 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 right? Yet something is positive, then it's denied. It's not quite that in the Heart Sutra. It's all. Oh, body is empty. Form is emptiness, and emptiness is form. True realization, I'm told, is realizing that these are not two. Like, this is a glass of water, but its nature is empty. Just like I had to say it with two sentences, that's different than realizing that its nature is empty. That's different. So form is emptiness, and the very emptiness itself is form. So it's about appearance. I always use the Donovan song, you know, that is based on, bless you, that is based on the Zen koan. First there's a mountain, then there isn't, then there is. First there's a mountain. I, I'm just like everybody else. Look like an ordinary mountain. Then it's empty. Buddhism went through this phase. People thinking emptiness was about nihilism. Nothing existed. Oh, my goodness. My Wesleyan students. Oh, no. No, no. The Buddha was not about extremes, or it wasn't eternalism or nihilism. It was something in the middle. Something in the middle means the thing exists, but not how I think it does. Not how I typically think it does. Not with all those attributions of permanence, for example. Not with the attributions I overlay on it. It exists. Something is there. It's just not what I'm forcing onto it, what I'm projecting onto it. That's simple. It's so simple. But it's often say that, you know, teachers often say that. It's so simple. Mm -hmm. But it's having that realization at the same time, knowing when you see appearance that it's empty. Oh, what does it help you to do practically? To be a little less attached. Just a little. Just a little. You know, he's saying, nah. nah. No, not even a little. Just a little. Come on. Just a little. OK. So first there's this concrete thing. Mm -mm. Then there's this concrete no thing. Mm -mm. And then you settle somewhere in the middle. It both does exist and doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And that's not two separate things. That's a realization. They come together. And when that happens, then you see. Something, I guess. Okay, diamond sutra, very quickly. The diamond cutter of doubts. The diamond sutra 
is a dialogue between the Buddha himself and uh, a Theravadan monk who won arhatship by practicing Maitri. So again, we have the wisdom, compassion thing. Subhuti is one of the great ten disciples, Theravadan. But he asked the Buddha all these questions. And I want to get, and, and, and some say, that's the most confusing stuff I ever heard in my life. The Buddha says, well, did I ever teach anything, Subhuti? And Subhuti says, no, Lord, as I understand it, you never taught anything. Because if you taught something, that would be no teaching. Right? <laughs> that's the Diamond Sutra, right? Did anybody hear me say such and such? Why no, Lord, because if anybody ever heard you, that would be, yeah. But here's the point. Here's the point. This is about actually trying to live out emptiness. Here's the point. Do you know the Zen saying? If you see the Buddha, kill him. If you see the Buddha walking on the road, kill him. What does it mean? If you see and you fix on something, you make it concrete, and hey, that's the Buddha, you better kill that idea and keep practicing. Because that's grab and hold. Hmm? Get it? It's simple. If you see the Buddha, kill him and keep practicing. Tikaha. Hmm? So that was simple. I saw some head shaking. That was pretty cool. I love that when that happens. Okay, so Subhuti is saying, uh, the Buddha says to Subhuti throughout these, uh, you know, 40 or so pages, well, Subhuti, did I ever do this? Subhuti says, why, no, Lord, because if you'd done that, that would be a no doing of that. <laughs> on, 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 until we get to a point where the Buddha says, just so. He says, for those who saw me by my form, and those who heard me by my voice, wrong the actions they engaged in. Me, those ones will never see. Hmm? Then he is saying, because of shunyata, if you grasp on to even me, let alone the teachings, as something that you see as fixed and immovable, hmm? You don't have Tathagata, those feet. You know, I wasn't really here. I was here, but then I was gone, you know. Tathagata, just a symbol. Diamond Sutra, you can go back and look at it. That's towards the end, that verse. Those who by my form did see me and those who followed me by my voice, those who wrong the actions they engaged in me, those ones will never see. Only by Buddha. Dharma and Buddha Kaya does one know the Buddhas, he goes on to say, Tikaha. And that's something that's ineffable. It's experience. Then at the end of this sutra, at the end of this sutra, we get this list of nine similes. Please tell me what those similes you think are doing. You remember the similes in the Diamond Sutra? It ends with this. There you go. I was once asked to come to Europe and give a lecture on, you know, the bubbles and the lightning. I said, the bubbles and the lightning? Where? You mean in the diamond suture? Well, I don't know. The Buddha said it. The bubbles, the lightning. <laughs> I said, you got to tell me a little bit more than that. Wanted me to give a talk on the bubbles and the lightning. So 
Oh, it's so nice. Oh, I marked it. Oh, that's the Heart Sutra. Okay. As uh, Kanza's translation, the end of uh, the Diamond Sutra says, how, how should we view things? And then the similes. As stars, a fault of vision, a lamp, a mock show, dewdrops, or a bubble, a dream, a lightning flash, a cloud, so should one view what is conditioned. So why are these good or not good? Can you think of any other similes for talking about reality that is not fixed but not non-existent? And would there be any others you'd add? Stars, a fault of vision, a lamp. In the old days, a lamp that you, I don't know what kind of lamp. A mock show, dewdrops. Oh. Think about them. What are, what, what, are the, what are they suggestive of, these similes? A lightning flash. Mm-hmm. Anitya, impermanence, right? One of the questions is, are these about impermanence or are these about emptiness? Sort of what Thich Nhat Hanh was getting at. Some of them are about selflessness and some of them are about impermanence. What is the Buddha saying at the end of a sermon? To say, this is how, after all that, no Lord, grains of sand, or no, because it was grains of sand, they would not have been grains of sand. Uh, and then at the end he says, as stars, a fault of vision, as a lamp, as a mock show, dew, dew drops, a bubble, a dream, a lightning flash, so should one view all things that are conditioned, all things that come into being, all things that exist dependent all things that have arisen dependently. Right? What kinds of things, what kinds of qualities do those similes suggest? You can't grab hold of them. You can't keep them. Hmm? You can't hold them. They change. Hmm. You know what I think is a better one? Not a better one. Well, another one. Uh. Uh, for selflessness, anatma, a mirror. We know that's not us in there. <laughs> so my father said, daughter, is all that information in this, in the, bless his heart, computer at the library. I said, mm, no, dad, it's, and then he said, yeah, but is it in here? <laughs> Tough, you know. Master, <laughs> my dad, I couldn't come, I couldn't answer that. No, not really, that's a monitor, you know. But, mm. Take her a mirror. A mirror. It's me, but it's not me. I know it's not me. But we operate as though that's me. And we do it with that. That's the problem. <laughs> a 
You know, I think a mirror is a good one. Some of the East Asian uh, translations use a mirror. Because that's so focused on self, you know. Clouds and dewdrops are out there, but we look in a mirror every day. And we know better. That is not us in that mirror, right? But we operate like it is. And then we carry that out into the world. Oh, the feeling I am is also the conceit that I am better. It's problematic. If we really look at it, I am means it's right from this perspective. You can say what you want, but in the end, I know. I know I'm right. That's really a conceit. The notion, I, I am. Any rate, probably to be content, continued. What I hope to do tonight was just point out that in Buddhist text and in Buddhist story, Dependent origination is not just one, one more thing. It's like the essential thing. And it carries throughout Buddhist teachings. Dependent origination. Tikaha. As His Holiness said, I take refuge in the Buddha who taught us dependent origination. So thank you. I'm happy if there are questions. Thank you for listening to the Maitripa College podcast. If you would like to learn more about Maitripa College, please visit our website at maitripa.org. M-A-I-T-R-I-P-A dot O-R-G. This podcast was produced by Alfredo Pinheiro, Kate McDonald, Andrew Hughes, and me, your host, Tiffany Blumenthal.